wouldn't have been enough. Okay, he paid it all. And thank the Lord, when it comes to salvation, we trust him to do everything that we could never do. And I thank the Lord for that song. certainly stirred my heart. Okay, children, I know you're heading for the exit, so it's all four years old up through the, about the sixth grade. If you want to be a part of that, you certainly can head back there. And I want to simply say also uh, that tonight after the service, my daughter, uh, Jana Faith, is uh, uh, going to be doing a podcast with uh, Mrs. Biggs here. And uh, uh, she does a monthly podcast called Faith Talks. Her middle name, of course, is Faith. And she does a, 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 a interviews different people. And so you can go uh, get the website from up on the back, uh, thegeneration.org. And in a few days, I think by the weekend, it'll be up. Uh, up and uh, I'd certainly encourage you to listen to that. Probably 15, 20 minutes, something like that. And uh, that uh, something she has done now for a few months. And we've certainly been excited. Uh, I think between 600 and 1,000 girls will listen to that in the next week. And so we're excited about that. I uh, just wanted to mention that since I thought some of you might want to enjoy listening to that. Don't want to put any added pressure on Mrs. Biggs, though, but I know she's going to do a great job. I was talking to her last night. Jana was as well. And some of the things she was saying, I said, that's going to be a real help to a lot of girls. And I, uh, I'm excited about it. You pray that God will use that testimony uh, to touch hearts. Uh, I don't know about you, but a lot of young people going through some tough things. And uh, they need uh, the fact that Jesus can meet their need in these, in these interesting days. Romans chapter number 13, if you'd go in your Bibles, Romans 13, hard to believe we're at our last service other than youth uh, activity on Friday. We'll be heading up on Saturday to Fairfax, uh, to the Fairfax Baptist Temple up there to conduct our War of Special Forces in their Christian school. And so we'd appreciate your prayers. Uh, then we head to a youth conference up in uh, back our home church in Wisconsin before going back to Ohio. Then we go to Tennessee, then a couple weeks in South Carolina, etc., and excited about the opportunity to serve the Lord and, uh, and do our War Special Forces. We're in those polos tonight. And if you want to find out a little bit about that, it's just a ministry program to teenagers in Christian schools and warsf.org. Warsf.org is a little bit about that. We have all kinds of websites out there for young people, but I mentioned that just to kind of, if you're interested in what in the world that's all about, you can certainly do that. Uh, look at that. I know some of you uh, were a part of the ones over at Faith uh, when uh, your pastor was the principal over there. We were there several times conducting special forces there. Okay, well, I've got a kind of a sobering message to preach. I really do, uh, because I don't know, as I mentioned, I think on Sunday, we certainly are in uh, interesting days, and I think they do deserve some Bible analysis of what the problem is and what the solution is. Tonight, I want to deal with the co-infections of moral impurity the co-infections of moral impurity. In just a moment, we'll read some very important verses out of the book of Romans, chapter number 13. But in the interim, I'd like to give you a little bit of an introduction to the subject matter tonight. When I was growing up, a teenager, of course, your pastor and, and I were several years apart, but we were in the same youth group, same church. And, and when I was growing up there at the Market Manor Baptist Church, from time to time, my dad would talk about an obscure, a kind of a, how do I say this, it was kind of, it never really was well known, but a study on sexuality that was done in the 1930s. There was a British anthropologist by the name of J.D. Unwin, U-N-W-I-N, and uh, he was a secular anthropologist. He's not a believer, I think best I can tell, an atheist or an agnostic, so he had no belief in God. But he came to, uh, I think, a premise, and his premise was something like this, that if you lose sexual morality that culture would flourish. So he studied 86 cultures and found the exact opposite to be true. That if you loosen sexual morality, the culture would be destroyed. Don't miss this in three generations. Do you know how many exceptions? 
none. 86 cultures within 100 years were either conquered by a more powerful culture or they were amalgamated into a more powerful culture. But within 100 years of loosening sexual morality, those cultures ceased to exist. Now, in his study, he basically pointed out that in the first generation, that'd be the first 33 to 40 years, everything looked to be going as normal. The older generation, which did not accept the loosening of sexual morality, kind of kept the lid on the thing. And so the first generation seemed pretty normal. Now, here's the very first thing that happened culturally to indicate that the culture had 100 years before it was going down. In every case, the very first thing to happen was the loosening of the expectation of premarital chastity, or prenuptial chastity. You know what I'm talking about that? In other words, we all know that from the beginning of time, there has been fornication occurring in every culture. We understand that. But in many cultures, it's not accepted. And it was not accepted in our culture in the 1920s, 30s, 40s. It was happening, but it was not yet culturally accepted. It was basically culture accepted, I can tell, in the 1960s with the, what they call the sexual revolution, which was also called the free love movement. I tell teenagers all the time, the free love of the 60s was not free at all. It's come with an unbelievable price tag, and this generation is paying it. But nonetheless, there's first of all the loosening of sexual morality by no longer culturally uh, demanding prenuptial chastity. That's the first indication that you've got 100 years, the culture will be gone. Now, this is not me speaking, okay, and this is not the Bible speaking, though the Bible gives us principles, don't get me wrong. This is the, the, uh, the study of J.D. Unwin, who was an anthropologist, sociologist, who was just doing honest research and wrote a book called Sex and Culture, which I understand is a snooze fest. Okay, in other words, it's just for people who like that stuff, but people have read it who like that kind of thing and spit it back at, out to us, and that's what I'm giving you right now. But anyway... Uh, but what uh, Unwin's pointed out, in the second generation, there are three indications that you're on target for disintegration. Do you want to know what they are? Because we're in the second generation. And I think they're going to stun you because it's like reading the morning newspaper. When these three things, and I'm not trying to offend anybody, please understand, but I'm just telling you what Unwin said. Number one, monogamy diminishes. Now, what he means by monogamy, obviously, is a husband and wife get together and they're faithful to each other to the day one of them dies. Now, there's two things that fight monogamy in our culture, or, or destroy monogamy, not destroy, but you know, they're, they're not monogamy, there may be a better way to put it, and that would be adultery and divorce. Okay, so those two things. Now, I want to ask you a question. I'm getting, this is just anthropology, sociology. Uh, do you think this generation, uh, that has increased? <laughs> yes, it has increased. Okay, so we're on target on that one. Number two uh, is deism decline. Now, when Unwin uses the word deism, he's not talking about Thomas Jefferson deism. He's talking about what we would call religion or belief in God. I read recently, well, I think within the year, that the, uh, the nons, they call them the non-religious, or those who claim no religious affiliation, now outnumber those who do claim religious affiliation in the United States. It's the first time since they started recording that that has ever occurred. Deism declines. Number three rationalism declines. You know what rationalism is? It's the reign of truth. It's when truth trumps everything else. So he says, in the second generation, what happens is truth is no longer important. What is important in the second generation is how somebody feels. Now, please understand, that is an indication the culture is falling apart. 
it is not a good thing. So if, one, if somebody in truth is chromosomes are one gender, and yet they feel like they're another gender, and everybody accepts that, that indicates, according to Unwin, that the culture is unraveling and will be destroyed within a generation. Now, if Unwin is correct, okay, I'm just saying a big F, uh, if, if Unwin is correct, there are young people in this room who one day will witness the destruction of the United States culture. Some of you one day are going to live in a land ruled by another culture. Now, I, I would have said even three years ago that's unthinkable, but it's no longer unthinkable. Now, again, Unwin, you say, is, is he correct? Well, 86 cultures, no exceptions. That's pretty good track record, you know, as far as writing down things. And all I'm simply saying is that the sexual revolution that has occurred in our country is destroying our culture from the inside out, destroying it. Now, I want to say a couple of things about this because I think it's very important that we understand. We've got to ask ourselves the question, why? Why would the loosening of sexual morality, why would no longer a culture demand prenuptial chastity, why would that destroy a culture? And the answer is actually very, very simple. Now, let me give you an illustration that might help us. In the early 1900s, there was a boating accident we're all familiar with. It was called the sinking of the Great Titanic. Everybody's aware of that. Did you know when the Great Titanic sunk, if you look at the, at the list of people who died, I mean, the greater, greater majority of them when it comes to gender were, anybody know? Male men. Do you know what the mantra was on the deck of the Great Titanic as it began to sink because there were limited lifeboats? Women and children, help me out now, first. There were men who put their wife and their child, kissed their wife and child, put them on a lifeboat, and turned their back and walked away and knew they would never see them in this life again. Now, I will be honest with you. That is quite a noble thing for, for us to, to witness what, what that happened. We realize there were some exceptions. I understand that. I, I can't remember the boating accident. I was hearing this illustration as a preacher gave it. But in the year uh, 2000 since, there's been another boating accident. And the uh, list of those that died in that one, and it was another large ship. I can't remember. It wasn't quite as well known. But large, largely, the, the amount of people, the people who died in that one were women. What has happened in the last 100 years? And I'm going to tell you what's happened. The rise of selfishness. The rise of selfishness. Why is no longer demanding prenuptial chastity such a big deal? I'm going to tell you why. Because it increases people's selfishness. Now, I'm not, going to be, I'm not trying to rub salt in the wound. I'm not trying, to make, not trying to be unkind. I'm trying to help us understand why we're in a big trouble. Okay, it's like this. Sexual sin feeds selfishness. And one of the problems with the United States culture is we are now extremely selfish culture. And do you know what selfishness does? It doesn't work. It does not work. Now, I'd like you to take your Bibles there in Romans chapter number 13. We're going to walk through a passage of Scripture, and I want to deal with this particular area of selfishness and why is selfishness is such a big deal. You say, well, preacher, how can you say that sexual sin and selfishness go together? Well, it's in a moment, we're going to see it from the Bible. But think about this verse we're not going to initially look at, but we will certainly reference here at the beginning. James chapter number one. Every man. That sounds pretty uh, kind of like, you know what I'm saying? It kind of includes everybody. Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lusts and enticed. 
My, may I say at the very end of, uh, at the beginning of every temptation is selfishness. Do you know that self, if, if temptation does not have selfishness, it's ineffective. If you were not a selfish human being, Satan couldn't tempt you. You know how, how Satan is, is able to tempt you to sin? Because you're selfish, because I'm selfish. I mean, the point is that's what he goes after, right? We all know that's what he goes after. Now, here's the problem. When you and I do choose to sin, not only do we do so because of selfishness, but you know what happens? Selfishness multiplies. And I believe in the area of morality that when we make selfish choices in the moral arena, it puts our selfishness on steroids. Now, this passage of Scripture is going to help us with this. Look at verse number 8. It says, Owe no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. So what God is simply saying is every single command in the entire Word of God that has anything to do with man-to-man -man relationship is all wrapped up in one thing. If you love them, then you're going to fulfill the law. Did you know that? Now, just to make sure you understand that, he runs through a few of what we would call the Ten Commandments. Look at verse number 9. For this, thou shalt not commit adultery. Let's stop for a moment. Let's just walk through these. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Now, the interesting word about the word adultery is it comes from chemistry. Did you know that? I don't know if morality borrowed it from chemistry or if chemistry borrowed it from morality, but did you know the words pure and the words adultery come from chemistry? Okay, so if you have pure gold, how many elements do you have? Oh, all you chemists out, how many took chemistry in high school? You're not looking okay? How many chemistry took you? I mean, like, you know, I'm talking to the cleaners. Okay, yeah, okay. There you are. I kind of get in that way. So I'm not trying to set you up. If you've got pure gold, how many elements? One. If you adulterate the gold, you catching the words here? How many elements do you have? And the answer is more than one. So you know what adultery is? You know what purity is? Purity is keeping all the intimacy God created for a husband and wife in the bonds of marriage. See, that's what purity is. For one. You know what adultery is? Adultery is introducing anybody who is not your spouse into intimacy God only created for husband and wife. That's adultery. Now, in that sense, and we see in the Bible it's used this way, there's such a thing as mental adultery. There's such a thing as emotional adultery. And obviously we think of it as physical adultery. But it's any time you introduce the intimacy that God created for husband and wife, somebody else into that intimacy, you have adulterated the purity of either a present or possibly a future marriage. I tell teenagers all the time, you can adulterate the purity of a future marriage by looking at pornography. In fact, when you look at pornography, you're committing adultery, mentally. See, that's the idea here. See, what, what Jesus is simply saying is simply this. If you commit adultery, you don't love your wife or your future wife or your future kids or your future grandkids. You only love yourself. Do you know why... The truth is, you know why people commit adultery? Because they're selfish. If they weren't selfish, they wouldn't commit adultery. Do you know why people uh, look at pornography? Because they're selfish. Do you know why people um, get involved and young people get involved and mess around with a boyfriend or girlfriend? Because they're selfish. See? See, God's helping us understand that this particular command, thou shalt not commit adultery, is really boils down to the issue of loving one another. If you love another, you never adulterate. Okay, so then he moves on. 
He says the next one. He says, thou shalt not steal. Do you know if you love somebody, you don't steal from them? That's pretty obvious. You steal from somebody, you don't love them. How about this one? Thou shalt not bear false witness. You don't lie to people you love. If you lie to somebody, you don't love them. That's what God's saying here. He's saying, then thou shalt not covet. Oh, thou shalt not kill. We missed that one. I guess that's pretty obvious. If you love somebody, you usually don't knock them off. You know what I'm talking about? And uh, I, I, I know for many of you, that's the only reason your, your kid brother's still alive. You know what I'm talking about? Because you loved him. Okay. I know many of you out here, that's why your roommates, you didn't kill your roommates. You plotted their murders, but you never followed it through. Okay. So you get the idea. Okay. But anyway, obviously, if we love somebody, we won't kill them. But let's go back down. Uh, thou shalt not covet. In other words, it's like this. If you love somebody, you're not envious of things that they get. If you're, all of you parents out here love your kids. You know something about this. If your kids get opportunities you didn't have, you're glad. And if your kids have the opportunity to have things that you never had when you were growing up, you're glad. You know why? Because you love them. Say, so we don't covet who we love. Now, notice what God says here. He says, if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. You say, well, preacher, there are other commandments. Well, that if statement is what we call a first-class condition in the Greek language, which simply means the if statement is assumed to be true. So what God is simply saying is, there are other commandments, and all the other commandments, basically you can wrap them up in this one statement, love your neighbor as yourself. And if you love your neighbor as yourself, you'll obey the Bible. Did you know that? At least the man-to-man command, you'll obey the Bible. Now, going, uh, continuing down through this, look what it says in 10. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Now, let me just simply say this. Love would never do anything to hurt somebody. And yet, let's just be honest. When someone is selfish, they always hurt somebody. You ever seen of a, a young man, young lady, they're not married, and they start, uh, they kind of get together and have a dating relationship, and, and you kind of surmise that some stuff's going on that really shouldn't be going on physically. And they break up, and guess what happens? They're hurt, particularly the girls. They're hurt. You know, because many times the young lady surrendered things that she thought, well, he loves me. And you know what I tell young ladies? If some, un, uh, some guy demands that you surrender to his physical advantages in the name of love, he's lying to you. He doesn't love you. He loves himself. Because if he loved you, he'd protect your moral purity. He wouldn't take advantage of it. See? See, love does not, love's not selfish. Love's selfless. And that's why the Bible says love works no ill to his neighbor. Love would never hurt anybody. But you know, so many young people don't get that. Oh, he loves me. No, he doesn't love you. If he loved you, he'd protect your moral purity. He wouldn't be demanding. He wouldn't be pressuring you. See, he loves himself. He's selfish. And I tell young ladies all the time, wake up, smell the coffee. Any guy tries to pressure you into moral issues, you can mark it down. He's selfish to the core. Run as far away from him as you possibly can because he'll hurt you. See, love doesn't work ill to his neighbor. That's what the Bible is saying. Now, here's the problem we have in our country because there's, it's like this. I'll be, I don't care if a Republican or Democrat. If I hear that they've committed adultery or they have, have committed fornication, do you know what I realize? Deep down, they're not public servants. They're out just to serve themselves. They're all about the big number one. I don't care if it's an RD next to their name. The point is we're living in a culture now where our public servants are no longer public servants. I'm telling you, most of our public servants, I'm not trying to be unkind, I'm just telling you the truth. If you haven't figured this out, maybe it'd be helpful for you to figure it out. They're not out to serve you. They're out to serve themselves. 
I'll be honest with you, thank the Lord, we still have some men and women who are genuine public servants in elected office. And anytime we run across one, we ought to be grateful we have somebody like that. And uh, none of our, obviously, they're all feet of clay. Some of them may be saved, some may not be. Uh, I'm talking about some of these ones that are good public servants. But the truth is, we've lost the whole concept. Why? Our culture as a whole has gone to selfishness. Now, I want to ask you a question. What happens when two selfish people marry each other? That's a great marriage, isn't it? What happens when two people marry each other for what they can get out of it? That doesn't work very well. I, I tell the Baptist College of Ministry students all the time, and uh, tell them all the time, listen, when you get married, you're going to bring the biggest problem you could think of into your marriage. And you know what it's called? You. I'm telling you, selfishness is the biggest problem I brought into marriage. I bet you it's the biggest. And if you hadn't figured that out, you probably got problems. You know, what I, you know what I love about marriage? I'm going to just tell you. You know what I love about marriage? You can't get out of it. <laughs> Say, what do you mean by that? The point is, if you're going to be happy in that marriage, you know what you're going to have to do? Deal with you. Well, I dried up on that one. Didn't get any amens on that one, but that's all right. It's still true. You're in a marriage right now, I'm just telling you right now, if you're committed to that marriage, and you're committed to the long haul in that marriage, I'm telling you, you're either going to be miserable or you're going to be happy. And the only way to be happy is to deal with your selfishness. See, but we live in a culture that doesn't, doesn't think that way anymore. We just don't think that way. And so uh, the biggest, what I would call co-infection, and I'm sure you could frame up things other ways, but one of the biggest co-infections that moral and sexual sin brings is selfishness. You know, what I've, you know what many marriages are like? It's like taking two alley cats, throwing them in a burlap bag and tying it up. That's what most marriages are like. Now, some of you are cat lovers, and you think those cats are just going to hug on each other all the time. But I'm just telling you, I'm telling you, I'm not, I'm not an anti-cat person. Please understand, I'm really not. But my dad used to put it this way. You can convert a dog, but you cannot convert a cat. They're hopelessly lost. Okay, now. Now, you might disagree with that, but um, uh, there's, uh, I'm not sure you could prove that from the Bible, but nonetheless, you get the idea. You know, the point is, you put two alley cats in a burlap bag, you're going to have World War III. And you know what? That's the way many marriages are. Because a marriage, in order to work, it has to be more about the other person than it is about you. And Americans aren't very good at that anymore. And I'll tell you why. Because when you're a teenager looking at pornography, making selfish decisions, and you get married and not having conquered that issue, you're in trouble. I mentioned that on Sunday, 70%, they say, of all men sitting in evangelical churches on a Sunday morning are struggling with sexual addiction. The dean of men at Baptist College of Ministry says 90% of all the young men that step through our doors have had some viewing failure, some of it more serious than others, 90%. These are preacher boys. I will tell you right now, I could not prove it scientifically, but I believe 90% of the young men studying for the ministry in our country are struggling with sexual addiction. This is where we are in culture. Pornography, the proliferation of the Internet, and pornography is destroying us. See, the problem with a young man who starts looking at pornography is not just that lust and not just the stuff he's looking at and not the undermining of his future marriage. The bigger issue is he becomes very selfish. And it makes them selfish like, I don't even know how to explain the selfishness. It just, because it's, it's, it's like 
one uh, documentary I watched, a Christian from a very Christian perspective, who put it this way: the average young man today, in one night, sees more uh, pornographic images than a World War II veteran saw in a lifetime. Now process that one. And I'm just going to tell you right now, all you World War II generation know, they weren't squeaky clean. But it kind of gives you an idea where we are today. The bigger issue is it causes young men to be extremely, extremely selfish. And unless you confront that and deal with it, 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 it comes along with you in all areas of life. So this is why our culture is decaying. And that's why I believe within 100 years, when you stop, uh, a culture stops demanding prenuptial chastity, why the culture folds in 100 years. Because selfish cultures can't last. And that's why, by the way, the answer to this culture is Jesus Christ. <laughs> because he's the one that can wash sins away. He's the one that can change hearts. He's the one that can make them new creatures. He is the one. He's the only one who can. So, uh, so selfishness is a huge deal, no doubt about it. But there's another co-infection that kind of comes along with selfishness. It's pretty selfishness. A little bit different, but, and again, I recognize, please understand, if you're here first, I say, whoa, preacher, this is rough. I understand that. Obviously, I work with every week of ministry. And working with young people, the number one problem is bitterness. The number, number two problem is morality. And I'm telling you, those are just by far the two issues. There's not a week that goes by we're not dealing with young men confessing pornography issues, and sometimes young ladies. 30% of all women sitting in evangelical churches are struggling with sexual addictions. I believe I mentioned these statistics on Sunday. My pardon to those that are getting them repeated, but obviously it fits the, the particular context here. So selfishness is definitely the first issue that comes along with a loosening of morality, but there's another really bad one, and it's found in this and in the heels. Look at verse number 12. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly. As in the day. The second co-infection, of course, it's a part, it's really part of selfishness, but it's a manifestation of selfishness, and that is deception. Deception. One of the problems with people living in sexual morality is they become really good deceivers. Now, it's interesting to me in the study I've done, there is one particular perspective that says when a man discloses to his wife that he's got a viewing pornography problem, it usually takes him at least one year before he can properly apologize to his wife. Did you hear that? And the reason they said it takes him a year is because he is so selfish and has been so deceptive and so evasive, he cannot properly be as forthcoming as he needs to be about everything. It takes him usually a year to get there. That's stunning. Now, there are four manifestations I have seen of deception when it comes to the morality moral arena that uh, are there. First of all is they become very good at covering sin. They know how to delete histories. They know how to cover their tracks. They know how to make sure nobody knows. They know how to, you know, they just are very, become very good at covering their sins so nobody finds out about it. But I will say this, because they're human, 
they usually mess up. And that's why the Bible says in Numbers 32, 23, you gotta love it. God says, be sure. Be sure your sin will find you out. It didn't say God will find you out. It's just be sure your sin will find you out. It's like this, you can look at pornography, but I guarantee you one day pornography is gonna blow your cover. It won't be God blowing your cover. The very sin itself will blow your cover. One day you're gonna miss something and somebody's gonna find out. That's what God says. If you're a believer, that's what eventually happens. The sin itself, it becomes the very detective. It betrays you and it blows your cover. But covering sin, not preaching fully on that message, but covering sin is the first manifestation of deception. The second manifestation of deception is wearing masks. No, I'm not talking about the paper one. Wearing masks, you know what that is? It's people get very good at acting like they're something they're not. Now I know there's some overlap here. And I, I'm telling you, with working with teenagers, they know how to do mask things. They know how to throw people off. And there's all kinds of masks young people wear. Sometimes the tough guy uh, mask, nobody's gonna tell me what to do. Sometimes it's the joker mask, I'm the big light of the party, I'm really funny, etc. That's usually a defense to hide a hurting heart and the list could go on. There are multiple masks people wear and they know deep down that's not who they are. Wearing masks, I don't have time to fully preach on that. But number three, hang on, this one's rough, blame. Blame. I hate to say this, but men who look at pornography, this is unthinkable to me, and I'll be honest with you, to me it's lower than a, like somebody said, it's lower than a snake's belly in a wagon track. Okay, that's kind of, the old preachers used to put it that way. But I'm telling you, one of the lowest things a man can do is to blame his wife for his pornographic addiction. I'm not trying to be unkind. Honestly not trying to be unkind. But I am trying to address a huge problem today. And that is simply this. If a man blames his wife for his pornographic addiction, that is low. Because I will tell every woman in this room that if your husband tries to blame you for a pornographic addiction, it is low, it is selfish, and it's not true. You know why? Because God's grace is sufficient. You can't blame anybody for your sin. And I can't either. But blame's bad. That shows you've gone low, 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 low. And number four, manipulation. Again, there's overlap on this. But one of the things that decept deceptive people become very good at manipulating their wife and their on the whole thing. And in uh, uh, a variety of ways, don't have time to go into it. Okay, so deception. Now, notice what God says here uh, as a solution. Well, actually, before we get to the solution, look at verse 13 again, because it, it kind of helps us understand. Let us walk honestly as in the day. So what happens if we're dishonest? Okay, here gives us three duets of darkness, three duets of deception. Number one, not in rioting and drunkenness. I would call this substance abuse, substance abuse. Rioting has the idea not of rioting like we had last summer. It's more of a drunken brawl is the idea. It's substance abuse. So obviously when people turn to alcohol, drugs, illegal drugs, abuse of prescription drugs, that's the idea of dishonesty and it's obviously often selfishness. Not chambering and wantonness, we've already addressed that. Those are two really nice, good old um, Bible words, and I love the Victorian English, don't you? Kind of helping us be appropriate there. But if you saw those words, you studied them in the Greek, they're really blunt, like really blunt words in the sexual immorality realm. And God's saying that's darkness. It's darkness, and it's also selfishness. And then not in strife and envy. You know what often happens when people 
are deceptive and people hide sin is they become, there becomes strife. Of course, we heard a testimony. Appreciate Hannah opening her heart. And I will tell you, God has done a great work in her parents' heart. But obviously, when there was deception and there was sin in that situation, there was strife. Now, I grew up in a preacher's home. And I'm going to just tell you right now, I grew up naive. I have found, even as I've grown older, I still have a tendency to be naive. I'm just going to be honest with you. And a few years ago, I realized something that blew me away. And I've had a hard time getting over it, so I figured I'm just going to preach on it until I get over it. You say, what's that? Now, this is going to shock you. I, don't wanna, I know some naive people out here. This is going to shock you. I hate to do this to you, but it's true. Did you know that Christians, husbands, and wives, this is going to shock you, hang on, Do you know that? Now, hang on. This is even worse. Do you know that some husbands and wives fight in front of their kids? Now, when I found that out, I'm going to be honest with you. It stunned me. My parents, I'm sure they had their disagreements, but they didn't fight in front of our kid, us kids. I, I, the only way I can think of it is if a husband and wife fights in front of the kids, they're selfish. You know what I would say? Take your business behind closed doors. Don't drag your kids through all the emotional difficulty that comes when mom and dad fight. Now, it's darkness when you fight. It's darkness when there's strife and envy. And it's selfish. That's what the passage is dealing with. And I'm going to tell you, one of the problems our culture is that's come along with all of this is selfishness and deception and darkness brings these things. And so God's trying to help us. You say, okay, preacher, this is kind of a tough diagnostic. Yeah, I'll admit it's a tough diagnostic, isn't it? So you say, what's the answer? Well, this is really simple, but the answer that's going to shock you, the answer for, for self, it, selfishness is selflessness. Did you know that? And the answer for darkness is light. So should we have the invitation, just as I am, or we're ready to go? Hey, preacher, what am I talking about? The point is, friends, we all know that the answer for lack of love is love. <laughs> That's what the passage is trying to help us with. And we all know that the answer for darkness is light. Notice what it says. Put on, get rid of the, the works of darkness, and put on the armor of light. Now, I'm going to talk about the light first, then we'll go back to the selfishness. Do you know the amazing thing? Light is powerful. Can I say this carefully? Darkness is wimpy. You know what I mean by that? You ever heard of a flashlight? You know what I'm talking about, flashlight. Now, I, remember, I know you're going to have to explain to some of these kids what a flashlight is. I remember back in the day when we all had flashlights. Now we have cell phones. You know what I'm talking about? And we use those as flashlights, okay? <laughs> Who needs a flashlight when you get a cell phone? Okay. So, but anyway, you know what a flashlight does? Man, it pierces the darkness. Have you ever heard of a flash dark? You turn it on, and there's a beam of darkness right through the light. No, I don't think that happens. Why? Because darkness is wimpy. Do you know in this room right now, it is impossible, while these lights are on, it is impossible for darkness to invade this room. You know why? Because light's powerful. But I'm telling you, friends, darkness can be invaded by the light, and it is all the time. <laughs> See, we think of darkness and light as, the same, as, as equals. They're not equal. Many times people who are caught darkness are overwhelmed with, I'm stuck, I'm caught in the darkness. Darkness 
feels so powerful when you're caught up in darkness, and probably every one of us in our life, but sooner or later, has had moments where we were caught up in some darkness. But I got really good news for you. Light causes the darkness to go. Now, there's different aspects of light, but let me give you one of them. You know what light is? Let us walk honestly. Now, I'm going to tell you. I don't know of a man to get victory over looking at pornography who does not go and become accountable to the right people who love him. Tonight, even probably as I'm speaking, into the double digits of young men, well, not just young, some are even up in my age and, and older and, and et cetera, but mostly young men, I'd say in their 20s, are going to get on Marco Polo tonight. If you don't know what that is, ask somebody that's young. They're going to get on Marco Polo tonight, and they're going to send, they're going to send a, a video and report on three areas of their life today. They're going to report on viewing, if they've looked at anything inappropriate on the Internet. Number two, hang on, this is going to shock you, they will report on their thought life. If there has been any lustful thoughts, dwelling on lustful thoughts, they will have to report it. And number three, another personal area I won't go into in the next audience. But they will report on all three of those areas tonight. Now, I'm going to tell you, you know what they're doing? They're shining light on the darkness that was in their life. I had one young man tell me, and he's one, one of the ones that was early on in this, this, this purity movement that I'd call. He said to me, Brother, and he didn't say it. There was not patting himself on the back. It, it stunned me when he said it. He said, Brother Van Gelderen, he said, for four months now, he said, God has given me a victory I never thought possible. He said, I've been tempted many times to think lustful thoughts, but he says, I have not had a defeat in lustful thinking one time. Every night he's reporting on what he's thinking about. How would you like to have to report on your thought life tonight? Honest. You say, preacher, if I start a report on my thought life, boy, I'd really work on having some victory. That is exactly the point. They're shedding. They have so lived in. Some of these guys have been hooked on a pornography for 10 years. Their first viewing was 8 to, eight to 11. And they got hooked on it. And you know what? There came a point in their life when they said, I'm sick of it. I'm done with it. I want out. And here's what they did. They started shedding light on it. They basically come to the point, I don't care who knows. I don't care what. And honestly, tonight, I am telling you the honest truth. I could bring probably, I would say, near 15 young men could come to the pulpit and would uh, testify of a pornographic addiction and the fact that they're living in sustained victory. And they would do it without shame because they're no longer identified by their pornographic addiction. They are identified with the fact that Jesus Christ has set them free. And they unashamedly give their testimony in hopes that it will help somebody else that was just like them in bondage who can also get free. If they were here tonight, well, we had a couple of them this week already kind of testify on that. See, the point I'm simply making, friends, is light is powerful. If you're struggling in this area, here's what I'm going to invite you to do. Go to your pastor and say, Pastor, we need to talk. And get help. Because I'm telling you, friends, light follows. Okay, you say, preacher, yeah, I see that. Okay, what about the, how do we become, if we're selfish, how do we overcome that? Well, I, I encourage these young men that get into this. I said, you have to fight that every time you have a selfish inclination, you've got to deal with it. Every time you have a tendency toward deception, you've got to shed light on it. You've got to be brutal with yourself. 
I tell many of them, you need to have two years of sustained victory or don't even think about marriage. I'm telling you, friends, marriage is not the solution to lust. Jesus is. I tell you guys, you have no business bringing a dragon a girl into that without getting sustained victory. And I tell our young men that all the time. And I'll be honest, here's another thing I'm a little sick and tired of, because I'm honest with you, when I was growing up, I, dad didn't certainly present this, but I kind of ran across other preachers or other places where it kind of was, well, you know, every guy's going to struggle. Every guy's going to struggle. He kind of gave you a pass to struggle. I'm telling you, friend, if the Bible's true, then there ought to be a way out from every temptation. What do you think? So we are certainly living in a day where these issues are huge. You would say, preacher, how do you get out of selfishness? Okay, glad you asked. Look at verse number 14. Look at verse 14 says. It says, gives us two things. It says, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, what does that mean? Well, if I had old man, uh, uh, I don't have time to preach a whole message. If you've got the word 0, 100, it would help you. It's basically like this. When you got saved, Jesus came into your life, and you were put into Jesus. There's an inseparable union, and that inseparable union is the key to overcoming sin. Did you know that? And I know you get good preaching from the Word of God, so as time goes on, you'll understand that. Walk in the Spirit. You won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Jesus is in me. I'm in Him. I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. I don't have time to lay it out, but I will tell you this. There's hope, and His name is Jesus. It's not, it's not grit in your teeth. It's Jesus. Put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ means live in the reality of your union, that you're in Jesus and Jesus is in you. Now, the second part of this is basically, um, how do I say this? What we preached on two nights ago. And those that were here would remember it out of the book of Galatians when we talked about crucifying the flesh. Look what it says. And make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. You know what the Bible's calling that? Zero tolerance. Do you know this group of purity, these guys on the purity journey? You know what one of their watchwords is? Zero tolerance. Do you know how much tolerance they have for lust? Zero. They will tell you the three things. I know I didn't go into one, but the three things they say they have zero tolerance about any one of those things. And it's changing them. It's not through, hard, it's not through gritting your teeth. It's not through gutting it out. It is learning to rely on the Lord Jesus, and it is, secondly, it is basically zero tolerance. Zero tolerance. And it's remarkable. So God's saying, don't make provision for the flesh. Now, I'm going to just simply say that everyone in this room may apply that a little bit differently. Make not provision for the flesh. You know why? Because every single time you and I open a door to the flesh, that's a potential temptation. There are some of you in this room that are not tempted by certain things other people are. Did you know that? You might not even think about certain things other people have to be very careful about. That's what God is saying. He gives us the principle, don't give your flesh an inch. Don't go there. I remember, I remember several years ago, I was um, uh, traveling with our team. And back in those days, there was, uh, I know there's some of you young kids in this room, I hate to shock you, but you had to go into a gas station to pay for your gas. Can you imagine that? What a waste of time. Had to go all the way into the gas station, pay for your gas, come back out. What a bummer. Okay, but anyway, that's the way we used to do it. Had a guy on our team, he'd pump the gas, he'd go in the gas station, pay for the gas, put the credit card, the receipt in the bag, zip it up, stick it under the seat. That was his job. He was 24 years old. He'd been on my team for several weeks, and he'd gotten saved when he was 20. He was kind of a teenage alcoholic, got saved, God changed his life. And he came to me one day, he said, uh, Brother Van Gelderen, he said, uh, could you get somebody else to go in the gas station and pay for the gas? He said, I'll pump it, but could you get somebody else to go pay for it? 
I said, well, sure, I can do that, but could you tell me why? He said, well, he said, you know, before I got saved, he said, I would buy some things in quick stops that I'm now deeply ashamed of. He said, and every time I go into a quick stop, I'm tempted. Now, I'll be honest with you, friends. When I walk into a quick stop, I'm not tempted. Well, I take that back. If it says 99 cents Coca-Cola, I'm tempted, okay? I am tempted. Okay, that's a great deal. Got to get that, especially this new Coke Zero, which I haven't tried yet. But anyway, okay, got to get that. Okay, now, but don't get me wrong. I could make poor decisions where a quick stop would be a temptation to me. You know what I said to him? I looked at him and I didn't, you know, here, I'll tell you what I didn't say. Oh, come on, bucket up, man. Grit your teeth. No, I didn't say that. You know what I said? You're not, while you're on this team, you're not going to the quick stop. You know why? Because I believe the Bible when it says don't make provision for the flesh. And I will tell you, friends, in the day in which we live, some people have to take, you know, do things that folks wouldn't even think about doing. Like many of these young men cannot, go to, cannot take their cell phone into their bedroom. They are accountable with each other. They will not take a cell phone in their bedroom. I'll be honest with you, most of us take a cell phone in our bedroom. We don't think twice about it. It's what wakes us up in the morning. But there may be someone in this room who says, yeah, preacher, that's true. That's just a problem. When I bring it in, there's some things that happen that shouldn't happen. I, all I'm simply saying that secrecy is a problem. I, I know this is going to shock you, but I used to preach to teenagers uh, about not having a TV in their bedroom. Can you believe that I'd be that old-fashioned preacher? And I would, I, in fact, I challenge the teenagers. Here's what I do. I say, hey, you've got a TV in your bedroom, and you've never watched anything to offend Almighty God. Come to me. I want to meet you. I made that challenge to, I think, at least 10,000 people. Do you know how many teenagers have come, came to me back when I used to do this? I don't do it anymore. Uh, you know how many came to me? One. He was a little cocky, I'll be honest with you. He came up to me and said, hey, preacher, I got a TV in my bedroom. Never watched anything to offend Almighty God. I said, well, great. How'd that happen? He said, I never turned it on. Okay, yeah, that'll work. Okay, great, that'll work. I say, preacher, why did you preach that? Don't miss this. Because most teenagers can't handle having access to filth without accountability. That's why I preached it. Now, everybody brings a TV into the bedroom. It's called a smartphone. Now you say, why don't you preach on it anymore? Well, maybe I should. The point I'm making is there are some young people can't handle a cell smartphone. In their, and, and you say, well, how do, how do you know I can't handle it? If you can't control it, you can't handle it. All things are lawful in me, but I will not be brought into the power of See, that's what it means, don't make provision for the flesh. I don't know what your application is. Many people can go in and sit their cell phone, they don't even think twice about accessing something they shouldn't. It's not a temptation to them. Not making provision for the flesh, but other people it is. See, not making provision for flesh is the absolute, it's saying I'm not going to give my flesh the opportunity to be selfish. Because I've got such a propensity towards selfishness. It's like this, friends. What Romans 13 is saying, you've got to confront your selfishness with the power of the Holy Spirit. You've got to confront your deception with uh, your darkness with light. That's what it's saying. Wow. Now, I just conclude with this. I know I've gone a little bit longer than the other nights, but let me just conclude with this and we'll be done. I remember several years ago, I can't remember where, but I heard a story that kind of wraps this message up, kind of puts hopefully a mental image on there that will be a memorable to you. 
a couple of travelers in an alpine situation, which would be like the Alps or Canadian Rockies or maybe some high point in the American Rockies, but it, it was, um, was that kind of alpine mountain situation and they got caught in a whiteout. Now, I'm not sure you folks here in Fredericksburg know what a whiteout is. You say, yeah, preacher, it's that little stuff we used to use when we were typing, that little bottle. No, that's not what we're talking about, okay? It, it's, it's, it was a blizzard. Out in, the, in the, the northern plains, they used to have whiteouts where people would die because they'd leave their house in the old pioneer days to go out to the barn and they'd lose their way. They couldn't find the way back and they found them dead the next day because they couldn't get to the barn or to the house. They used to put ropes between the, the barn and the house just so they could get there and back without dying. Whiteouts are very dangerous. I don't think I've ever been in a whiteout. I've been in some blizzards, but not, not a whiteout. But uh, these two mountain men were uh, in a whiteout, a very dangerous situation. And, and being in the woods, they knew they had to stay on the path. If they got off the path, the woods would look alike in this situation, and they'd be in trouble. So they were heading toward a village. They knew if they kept on that road, they'd get to the village, and they were assisting each other along the way. As they came across that path, they came across a big, huge hump in the road. Well, they're mountain men. They knew what it was. It was a human being. So they stopped, dusted him off, checked his pulse, realized he was in uh, severe hypothermia. He was alive, but barely. The one traveler said to the other, we can't rescue this guy. If we rescue this guy, we're going to die. Listen, we've got to save our own skin. The other guy said, no, listen, he's alive. We've got to try. I don't care if we die in the temple. We can't just leave him out here. We've got to try. He's alive. The other guy says, you want to rescue him? You rescue him. I've got to save my own skin. Off he went. Finally, the man realized, if I die in the attempt, I can't. I couldn't live with myself, so I got to try. He took the man, put a leg here, an arm here, and he began to carry him. And before where he was shivering like this, now he began to move. And, of course, it wasn't long before every became excruciating pain. His muscles screamed in rebellion, and he wanted everything that he could to stop and put the guy down, but he knew he couldn't do that. So as slow and painstakingly as it was, he began to move. And he noticed before where he was shivering to stay, to stay warm, now he began to sweat. As he began to sweat, he noticed something. The warmth from his own body was going into the body that he was carrying, and he noticed that the man seemed to be getting warmer and warmer and warmer. And pretty soon he was carrying a 98.6 Fahrenheit uh, degree uh, Fahrenheit uh, water bottle, you know what I'm talking about, on his back. Well, he's traveling along, and of course he's sweating, and he's just, just painstakingly, it's slow, it's tough work, and, and uh, he knew he couldn't stop, and he's moving forward, and finally he realized we're getting close. We're getting close to the village. We're going to make it. And he was all excited about it. The man was still unconscious. Still, his life was still in danger. But came across another hump in the snow. Realizing he, he couldn't stop long and because the man he was carrying, he, he just thrust his hand in to catch a, catch a wrist and to try to take a pulse, but he was ice cold. He was dead. It was clear. He was, dead. He was going to pick the man up. He thought, well, I better identify him because the village won't know. So he begins to brush the man off, and to his absolute horror, he found out that the man he had discovered was his fellow traveler. The man who lived to save himself died, and the man who lived to rescue another lived. Isn't that a great illustration of life? You know what happens when we live for ourselves? We're like that woman in 1 Timothy 5. We're dead. Why we live? But do you know what happens, my friend, when we live to rescue others? We don't just live. We live abundantly. See, life's not about us. It's about the Lord Jesus using us to touch others. And there's not a real person in this room who has not lived for others, who is not living in fulfillment and satisfaction 
That is only, that's the only way you'll ever get it, is by living for others. Romans 13 is a passage of scripture that diagnoses the great problem of the United States of America. Sexual immorality has put this country on an absolute road of selfishness and deception, and it's killing us. But the wonderful thing is, there's an answer. And the answer is the selflessness of the Lord Jesus, who I'm in union with, and the light of this book and the light of the truth of this book that can pierce and deliver us from the darkness. Hallelujah, there's a way out. The country doesn't have to be destroyed in a generation, but it's going to take God's people realizing that the truth can set us free. Can I ask every head bowed, please, and every eye closed? You've done a wonderful job. I have preached a few moments longer than I said I would, and I do I'll give you my, uh, appreciate your attention on that, give you my uh, uh, apology on that, and I'm just going to ask that we'll just move quickly here, but I do want us just for a moment to uh, consider these thoughts. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Would you just stand to your feet right where you are? Heads are bowed, eyes are closed, no one's looking. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed, no one's looking. Just a moment, we're going to have an invitation. I realize an invitation of this nature might be a little challenging. I understand that. If you want to come forward, you're certainly welcome to. Maybe you just want to sit where you are. and Maybe you say, preacher, I can't sit in the nature of the message. I can't, but I, I'll do business while, with God while I stand. I'm not telling you what to do, but I'm telling you do what Jesus tells you what to do. But I will say this. If it's an issue where there's an action step you need to take, like getting to a pastor and saying, you know, I need some help in, in some of these areas. I need some deliverance. Uh, the, the, the culture has gotten me. They're viewing some, I'm, some of the viewing, whatever. It may not, you say, well, preacher, I may not be looking at what the classic people call pornography, but I am watching movies that are not helpful, and I'm watching media that's not helpful. The heads are bowed and eyes are closed, and no one's looking. In just a moment, the piano's going to play, and I'm just going to ask you to just to take the Word of God and do whatever God tells you to do. You've done a wonderful audience tonight. I know it's a message to preach, and I know it's not easy to listen to, but I'm hoping it'll be liberating and helpful because the truth says it set us free and help somebody in this room. So as you know, please, if God touches your heart, I just encourage you to just do business with God how he'd have you to do business.